regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. pleasure to be on a call with Eugene Yan. Eugene is a data scientist and writer. He works at the intersection of consumer data and technology to build machine learning systems to help customers. And he also writes about effective data science, learning, and career. Uh, he is currently an applied scientist at Amazon, uh, helping users to read more and to get more out reading. Uh, previously, he led the data science team at Lazada, uh, which is acquired by Alibaba in 2016. There he worked on e-commerce ML system in projects related to ranking, automation, and uh, fraud detection. He enjoys meeting people with similar interests and email is always appreciated and the best way to reach him. So Eugene, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. I mean, it's a great pleasure. So I, I want to start out you know, talking about your educational background. So I saw that you, uh, you got your bachelor degree in uh, psychology and organizational behavior from the Singapore Management University uh, in which your senior thesis is called Competition Improves Performance. So can you uh, describe your undergrad experience? So in my undergrad experience, I focus a lot on psychology. I was really interested in understanding how people think, how people perceive the world around them and how that affects their behavior. So that was what I worked on. On my thesis, I I realized that um, there were people that reacted well to competition and there were people that did not react well to competition. So what I found was that this had a lot to do with the concept of self-efficacy or you can think of it as self-confidence. For people with an adequate level of self-confidence, they do well in competition. But for people without, they don't do well. Um, and also what I, what I focused on there was a lot of psychology concepts definitely. But what was really important that really helped out in my data science career was um, all those statistics classes and experimental methods and uh, figuring out how to do literature review to, to guide our experiments. So that was very useful and helped me right now in my data science career. And uh, so your first role out of school is an uh, investment analyst position at um, the Singapore's Ministry of Trade and Industry. So how, how was your experience there? So right out of school, I still wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. So I joined the Ministry of Trade Industry. In that role, I worked across multiple free trade agreements and investment agreements. So my role there was to try to figure out, hey, how can we help our companies in Singapore invest overseas in a safe way? So I worked on a lot of uh, legal agreements with other countries. So that was fun uh, for a while, but I started really missing looking at the numbers uh, that some of my other teammates were looking at. So th- that, that was where I was eager to move towards. And so after working there for about two years, you, you then moved to IBM for a data analyst role. 
Can, can you share briefly about you know your your first year working at IBM? So I was part of a cohort of people that IBM recruited, uh, and we were initially put into data analyst uh, consulting roles. So in those roles, uh, I moved across multiple different projects. Uh, one of my first project was with the supply chain center of competence. There I built um, mostly focused on building dashboards, trying to provide insights on which of our suppliers and delivery third party providers were slow or fast and, and how, how that was affecting our supply chain. Um, I also moved around to other projects such as um, social media analysis trying to help one of the big electronic brands try to figure out uh, what was the share of their social voice, how, how many people were talking about them relative to their competitors, um, was the general sentiment positive or negative, and, and to do this, uh, I used the, the free Twitter feed. I, I also had the chance to be involved in anti-money laundering, so that was with helping a global bank um, to figure out uh, patterns of money laundering and to try to detect those um, that happen for their investigators to, to vet. They are, they are manually looking at it and digging into the transactions. You then transitioned to um, a, a data scientist title within IBM. And in this new role, you, you have built automated data pipelines for large screen modeling, job forecasting models, and internal job recommendation engine. So how was this transition like for you? And uh, can you quickly go over some of these projects that you work on? So this was pretty interesting. Um, by then, I had sort of given up on my psychology degree, being of any use in the in my career. Um, but at this point in time, or, or the lead of the IBM, I, I think what we call it was workforce analytics, um, was looking at people uh, to fill her team. And so in our first interview, I, I asked her why why did you interview me? And she said that, oh, it's because you have a background in psychology. You're the only one in this cohort that had a background in psychology. And we need that because what we're dealing with is a lot of people analytics, trying to forecast attrition, try to understand what people fit well in roles. So that was how I, I was very fortunate to have the chance to chat with this lady, Karen, um, and she offered me the role. So that was how the transition happened. Um, while I was there, I, I worked on a couple of things. I think one of the first projects I worked on was try to forecast which jobs would be in demand in, in the maybe next three to three to six months, uh, even a year. So then with this forecast that we know of which jobs are going to be in demand and which jobs are not going to be in demand, we would use that to guide our internal job recommendation engine. So let me give you an example. Um, so maybe there are certain languages that are maybe not uh, so commonly used, like maybe Fortran assembly. And we find that people with this technical background on, on such languages, they transition well to other technical backgrounds, uh, other technical roles that require similar skills, such as maybe app development in Android or Swift, or, or maybe uh, cloud uh, development. So what we try to do is, okay, given this forecast, we know what jobs are going to be in demand, what jobs are not going to be in demand. We also know the people who transition, what they, what transitions were good and what transitions were not so good. So based on that, we tried to build an internal job recommendation engine for IBM employees to move them throughout the organization every two to three years. So the intent behind this is we find that people who move laterally, they tend to be more satisfied. Uh, not as bored, there's, there's more room to, to grow, more room to learn. 
and it, it was very positive for retention, obviously, uh, because to, to retain a person, uh, to, to hire a new person to, to replace that role, that person who has built up all this IBM knowledge of our internal tooling um, and to be productive is very expensive. Mm -hmm. So that's why we built uh, the job recommendation. I think there were plans to open it up, but I, I'm not sure what happened to that. I see, yeah, very, very interesting projects that you work on. Continuing on, on the track of your career, at this point, uh, after two years um, with IBM, you became a data scientist at Lazada Group, which uh, was a small e-commerce startup back in 2015. So for the listeners who are not familiar with the organization, can you provide an overview of the company and uh, what motivated you to join at this point? Yeah, but before that, I want to check you, James. Have you heard of Lazada before even coming across my profile? Yeah, yeah, yes, I, no? I, uh, I heard of it because I, I was initially I was born in Vietnam. So you would have heard it. So Lazada is an e-commerce platform. It was founded in 2012 with the backing of Rocket Internet. So Rocket Internet created a lot of uh, similar startups uh, in Southeast Asia. So what we were trying to do is to take Amazon's model um, that was working very well in the U.S., and try to bring that to Southeast Asia. So you can, you can imagine, right, in 2012, almost 10 years ago, people in Southeast Asia didn't have e-commerce. To buy anything, you had to go to the store. And this was really difficult for, for people who live in the rural areas. And maybe there would be some e-commerce, but getting access to credit card was very difficult in Southeast Asia. Most people didn't have credit cards. So how do you make the payment in a safe way without being scammed? How do you make sure that the item was delivered to you is the real product without being scammed? How do you return the product if you're not satisfied? So that was very difficult. So that was what Lazada was trying to do. So how I joined the company was, was pretty interesting. I took part in a Kaggle competition on product classification. It was the auto product classification with, with my friend, uh, Weimin. So we did decently well. I think we got into the top 3%. And I just thought that, hey, you know, it might be a good idea to just share about this at, at a meetup. I was pretty excited to share. And it so happens that I, I did have a chance to share this at a meetup uh, by my very good friend, uh, Kaisin, who uh, co-founded that meetup group. And you should interview him anyway, uh, by the way. So I, I shared at the meetup. And people heard about this. And it so happens that Lazada was new and had this problem as well, product classification. So they're trying to fix that problem. So they reached out to me. Kai Singh was also in Lazada. He reached out to me. I went there, chatted with them. It sounded super fun. It was only a small team, like a three-man team only. Um, but I, I thought, hey, I, I've had some experience in very big organizations such as the government and IBM. I was itching to try out how working in a startup would be like. And the, the people I met were, were all super awesome. So I, I was really looking forward to learning a lot from them. So that was what I, I just took the leap of faith and just joined. Who knows whether you'll go bust or not. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about later on about some of the projects that you work on at Lazada. But uh, before that, I, I saw that in, in late 2016, you um, decided to go back to school and, and pursue an online master's degree in computer science at Georgia Tech. And you also have written like many posts on your website reflecting on your experience with the classes taken during your master. And, and so what was the motivation behind this decision to, you know, do online master? And uh, what was some, what were actually, what is your top three favorite classes taken at Georgia Tech? 
so this is a question that a couple of people have also asked me before. I, I think what is very unusual for them is at a point in time, I had already sort of gotten a data science role. In fact, two data science roles, one in IBM and then one in Lazada. And, and people were wondering, why are you doing this master's? Because you're already part of the industry. Um, most people do further education as a step into the industry. But for me, I, I think it was very different. I suffer from um, chronic imposter syndrome. So while I learned a lot about data science and programming on my own through Coursera, and Coursera is amazingly awesome, by the way, I, I felt that I was lacking the fundamentals and that piece of paper, which is that piece of master's degree. Um, but mostly it's about, I, I wanted to learn about the fundamentals in a structured format uh, in school, in, in a school format. So I, I chanced upon uh, Georgia Tech. So the motivation behind this, why Georgia Tech? Because honestly, Georgia Tech is really cheap. It's like 10,000, 12,000 for the entire master's. And the profs there were, were world-class. So you ask, so, so my motivation there is to go back to school in a structured environment, pick up the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. um, and Georgia Tech just fit the bill, world-class profs. And I could, I, I could learn part-time. I didn't want to sacrifice the job experience right, that I was getting. Because um, our industry moves so fast, I think the year I joined, Spark was everything. After that, it was machine learning. Now it's AI, then transfer learning, and then now reinforcement learning. The, the industry moved so fast. So I wanted to stay in it. So my top three favorite classes, I would say it's a lot of the machine learning related classes. If I reflect back on this, I, I think it's actually my top three favorite profs. So one of my favorite profs was uh, this combination of Charles Isbell and Michael Lippmann. They taught machine learning and reinforcement learning together. So the lectures were just them bantering and, and talking about machine learning and how it doesn't work, how it works, etc. And then we had to do assignments, um, run experiments. And that was just really, really difficult. Um, we had to learn, we had to read papers on our own and try to implement them um, in order to get a passing grade. Then another prof that I really liked was uh, Ted Starner. He taught AI, artificial intelligence. Uh, we also had guest lectures from... Uh, the greats like Peter Novick, who wrote the textbook on artificial intelligence, uh, Sebastian Trun, who founded uh, Udacity. So the, the, the teaching style was the same. We, we, we'll talk a bit about this concept, like probabilistic graphical models, um, Bayesian networks. We, we, they, they would talk a bit, and then we would have a lot of reading and an assignment to do. And it was just so difficult that, I, I, and I wrote a blog post about it, Prof. Uh, Ted Stan actually commented that the teaching philosophy is to, is to expose you to a bit and then have you learn by doing, by doing your own research. So those are the two profs that I really enjoy. And the last one that I really must uh, say is uh, Professor David Joyner. So I'm really interested in education and um, building useful products for people. And David Joyner, Prof. David Joyner had two classes, uh, one on education technology and another on human-computer interaction. So for these classes, uh, there was very minimal coding involved, but almost every week we had to write a paper and an essay. So in that, in that class, again, he was teaching us how to build useful products, how to build a use, useful educational products uh, by doing it itself. And I really practiced a lot of my writing. And Prof. David Joyner just has so much enthusiasm that you just feel really excited to go to class every day um, and, and the office hours. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say that those are my favorite classes um, at Georgia Tech. Well, first of all, how did you find the time to kind of fit, you know, studying that compared to, uh, in, in addition to, to working full time? So that's the first, first part. And second part is like, 
what was sort of the general communication style, you know, with, with fellow students and, and the professors uh, in, a, in an online environment? So I think those are, that's a great question. <clears throat> the first one I'm always asked, how, how do you manage to do it, um, Eugene? Um, to be frank, I'm not the only one. There are a lot of people who are doing this part-time as well. So, but let me share with you how I do it. I think first, I have a very understanding family and a very understanding girlfriend, now wife, who just lets me um, focus on my studies uh, on weekday nights. I, I don't, on weekday nights and, and on weekends. I actually don't have much of a social life. I don't go out much. Most of my time is just poured into studying and, and learning. So that's the first question. I, I just, it, it takes about 20 to 40 hours a week. It really depends on the assignment. If, it, if you get a really easy assignment, that's like eight hours a week you'll be done. If it's a very difficult assignment or something you have completely no experience in, um, like I tried to do stupidly for my last class, which is Introduction to Operating Systems, purely in C and C++. So I had to learn C and C++ and, and do the assignments at the same time. That was really difficult. So what was your second question again? I'm sorry. Yeah, it was the communication. Oh, so initially I was very worried about an online class. I don't know if the interaction was, would be as high quality, but there are some very good benefits, I realized. One is that the video lectures are on demand. I can just use it anytime, right? So um, that's, that's amazing. Um, the second thing is communication. We, we do it through a lot of forums and through Slack. Mm -hmm. So the strong part of, about forums and Slack, right, is that you ask a question once, someone answers, and that's it. The question is answered forever. There's a documentation on it on the forum or Slack, which makes searching very easy. So that's how you scale education to, to a certain extent, right? So a lot of our communication was on forums and students would, whenever we are doing an assignment, you will know it's the last few days of assignment where the activity on Slack is just so heavy. And then Slack, if it's threading, someone asks a question, we answer via the threads, it makes it easier to organize. Um, so I, I found the communication very, very good. In fact, much better than in a face-to-face -face classroom setting, actually, I would say. Yeah, interesting. And, and I, I would assume that that might become much more of a trend uh, even the current situation is a lot of, especially in the US, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of universities uh, sort of uh, moving into online format yeah. before. So it seems like yeah, they need to adopt best practice in, in remote teaching, and like what you mentioned. Fully agree. And I think it can work decently well. I mean, from my experience, I think it works decently well. Awesome. And um, well, so from a career perspective, earlier this year, you wrote a blog post reflecting on your journey from getting a degree in psychology to leading data science at Lazada. You know, could you mind imparting some of the milestone along that journey for listeners who are motivated to pursue a similar path? So I just want to give a disclaimer first that my path is very idiosyncratic. I'm not saying that I'm special or anything, but my path was I was very, very lucky. So, and everyone's path is different, um, but nonetheless, this is my path. I think when I was making a transition out of government, after two years in government, I was really lucky that IBM gave me the opportunity um, for my first data role as a data analyst. So I applied, I attended interviews, it was some SQL questions, some statistic questions, uh, which I was able to answer, very minimal machine learning questions. So that was good enough. So I was really lucky IBM gave me the opportunity. I think, then the second thing was I, I shared up and that caught the attention of Lazada. Again, 
that was just pure luck. Uh, it so happened that they had a problem on product classification. It so happened that I did a competition on product classification and shared about it. And I happened to be located in Singapore. So, and they gave me a chance. So that helped me get into Lazada. Then while in Lazada, I had great teammates and great bosses. Um, honestly speaking, uh, they gave me a lot of opportunity to do um, crazy things, to, to build things fast, to just run experiments and fail so many times. And they, they would never say it's a failure because to them, it's just a lesson, right? I, I cannot tell you how many A-B tests I had conducted that lost so much money for Lazada. But after the A-B test, what we have was a better customer experience. Uh, and better ranking that obviously it turned out well but they give me the opportunity to fail so those are the milestones and and if i would if i had to distill it into some things it would be um just trying a lot just just trying a lot of things you get lucky on five percent of them and look out for people that give you opportunity to do great work and, and work with them awesome yeah thanks yeah. for sharing that and i'll be sure to include the, the link of your in the show notes I was, uh, you know, listening to like, I think like, like the podcast a while back talking about this element of luck. And someone said that, I guess the quote is that luck is like, it's like a bus, you know, it, it comes and go and but it always come around and you know, yeah. that bus, you, you need the bus ticket, right? Yep. Yep. To get to that, that bus and in order to, to buy that ticket, you need to put a lot of effort, only enough money to buy the ticket. And it, it seems like by the virtue of what you're saying, you have to create your own luck by putting out a lot of a portfolio of work in order to make enough credibility to, to get into that, that bus, right? I, I love that bus ticket analogy. I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great analogy. Awesome. So, um, you know, after three years at, uh, at Lazada, you worked for one and a half years at UK.ai, which is a, a startup that aims to make healthcare more efficient and reduce costs. And so how was this transition for you and... Um, what has a unique data science change in healthcare compared to other sectors? Well, I, I wouldn't say that there was much of a transition. I guess I joined Lazada as a startup. I really like the startup environment, being able to iterate fast, um, push up things fast for our customers. Um, so UK.ai was, was like that when I joined. I think it was like a 10, 10 12-man team. Um, but I was, I was fairly comf- comfortable with it. We had solid rock stars there and I learned a lot from them. I think the unique data science challenges in healthcare, I can't compare to other sectors, but I can compare to e-commerce and I'll share with you. So for example, in let's say in e-commerce, we provide a product recommendation, right? On someone's homepage. So that is very straightforward. They will never question why you give me such a recommendation. Okay, sometimes they might, but most of the time they don't. But in healthcare, if you were to recommend something like, hey, I'm, I'm going to recommend you this treatment, I'm going to suggest this diagnosis. I'm going to estimate that this is your hospital bill. People will want to know. For example, they might come in, they might come in for a simple procedure like just putting a heart stent that maybe costs $800. But if we predict that it's going to be $16,000, they're going to be, they're going to get worried, right? They're going to think, oh, are you predicting that there's going to be a complication? Uh, what's going on? So what's very important in data science in healthcare is that there's a lot more requirement from the customer with regard to explainability. And false positives are a lot more expensive. So for example, if you are predicting that this, let's say we are doing insurance fraud, right, in terms of healthcare, and we're trying to predict whether this is fraud or not. 
you have to be very, very careful in terms of labeling a claim as fraud because real lives are affected. If you label the claim as fraud, that means that person cannot get the payout and it will affect his healthcare. Whereas in, in e-commerce, maybe you label something as fraud or not, you know that there'll be someone that goes through, that looks through it, or if the order doesn't go through, the customer's gonna order again. That's, it's not as painful as denying someone of their insurance claim. Um, the other, and so, so that's the softer aspects of machine learning, how it's difficult to apply in, in healthcare. The other aspect that I think is quite different from other sectors is that I think the financial incentives in data science and machine learning for healthcare is not quite there. For example, in e-commerce, the financial incentives is really clear. You build a good ranking model, you build a good recommendation system, conversion goes up, you can quantify it in dollars and cents. But in terms of healthcare, for example, if um, you're able to predict if someone is going to fall ill, so the insurance company can take steps to prevent that, that's very difficult because it's very difficult for them to change the behavior and to, to reduce the financial burden. So I, I think the, the industry needs to work on the financial incentives a bit more because before it can be a bit more widespread. As someone who has given many talks at you know, a variety of conferences and meetups, you share a post on seven ways to provide a, a kick-ass data science talk uh, a couple months ago. So can you run over those elements? Yeah. So I won't be running through the seven ways because I think that's, that's a bit too much for this quick chat. But I think um, I'll, I'll try to boil it down for, for listeners. I think the first thing is if you're going to present something at a meetup or write about something, share about something that you really, really care about. So when you're sharing at a meetup, it's just like you're being a lighthouse. You, you, you're trying to say that I really care about this. I want fellow nerds and fellow geeks to kind of find me and, and discuss about this. Don't try to write the trend and share about things that are in demand now, if, if you're not really attracted to it. Um, it. It comes across very clear. The audience will know that, hey, you know, this is just some solutions engineer trying to present something for his company and, and they won't be interested and, and their engagement won't be there. It, it won't be authentic as well. You won't make very, very many authentic co connections. So after you found a topic that you really care about, um, I would say to share as much as you can. Um, imagine yourself as a data scientist being as part of the audience. What do you care about? Well, you care about the, the metrics, right? You care about the training validation metrics, you care about the results, how it actually um, helped customers, how much profit or revenue or costs were saved. Um, you, you also care about the code. You want, you want to see some basic code, um, maybe have a GitHub repo available so they can try to replicate your work and learn from it. And personally for me, I'm very interested about what didn't work. I really enjoy those meetups where, where presenters share about, hey, you know, we tried this, we tried that, this didn't work. Um, so I'm going to save your time. Don't try this, don't try that. Try this instead. This is what worked for us. I think that, that is those lessons on what didn't work are very precious. And I think lastly, if you're presenting a meetup, um, if it's an in-person meetup or video meetup, I think uh, I've seen presenters, um, and this is mostly academics, where when they try to present, uh, it comes across as a lecture where they try to educate. Um, they try to share so much detail that people sort of zone out after five, 10 minutes. Um, I think in the meetup is quite different. I, I think the main thing that you want to try to do is to entertain, make sure that the information is novel, is fresh, you, you cover uh, the big picture so that they have the big context before you try to, before you try to go deep. And even if you try to go deep, don't try to go too deep because your audience is going to lose, lose track, right? It's not a class lecture. Try to empathize with your audience. They're going to be tired. It's after a hard day's work. 
So if you try to keep it entertaining, and if they want to learn more, they can always reach out to you. And that's how you've made a friend. So those are my three tips for giving meetups. Awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing that. Personally, I myself also went to a lot of meetups. So I definitely can take some of that away from, you know, actually how, how to approach speakers later on. Yeah, that's great. So since January of 2020, you have been working as an, a blast scientist at Amazon. You know, how was your transition here? What are some of your broad uh, responsibility? In 2019, one of the things that my wife and I wanted to do was to try to get out of our comfort zone. Uh, what that really means is to try to get out of Singapore <laughs> for a while. So we actively applied in overseas roles. So I focused on applying for roles that could really help people, um, such as in healthcare startups or fitness trackers, etc. And there was this um, Amazon Kindle role that really appealed to me. So the Amazon Kindle role was really to try to help users read more, to try to help users find books easier. So that's what I did. I applied for a lot of roles. And the process, it's, it's pretty generic, preparing for interviews. I have some experience. Um, I have a lot of projects I could talk about. But what I was not so strong in is maybe the live coding sessions. So you prepare for that through lead code or hacker rank. It shouldn't be too involved because you are trying to get a applied scientist role. So nonetheless, I, I've had friends whereby when they go to the applied scientist role, they get lead code hard questions like trying to balance this tree or balance the brackets or whatever. I don't really think that quite makes sense because that's not what you actually will do in real life. And the best interviews I've had, they've always given me interviews that are very similar to your real life responsibilities, right? So prepare for those. Mm -hmm. So for me in Singapore, I had a lot of video interviews at odd hours in the day, very early in the morning. And I had flights overseas to meet the team and to just uh, do on-site interviews. Yeah. So that's how, that's how it happened. And so I'm in Kindle right now. And I, I think you've mentioned it a few times already. So what I'm trying to do is to help people find books that they like easier. So maybe that's through recommendation engines mm -hmm. and also through understanding text, a lot of uh, natural language processing. As we right now, we are in the, in the topic of, you know, talking about a transition and, you know, you obviously have, have uh, experience working from government to, you know, startups to, uh, organization. You recently wrote a post called Commando, Soldier, Police, and Your Career Choice, which provides an interesting metaphor to help guide career decision. And so, you know, how does this metaphor mirror your career? All right. So for listeners that <clears throat> might not be familiar with this, maybe I can just take one minute to share about it. So I think, um, imagine that a new market is like a new piece of territory, right? There's no one there. Okay, we, we don't know what's there. There could be resources, there could be booby traps, there could be enemy forces. So what commandos do is they go in and establish a small outpost, a very, very tiny outpost, like a one-bedroom. Um, and then what soldiers do is after they come in from the outpost that the commandos have set up, and they try to storm the land. They try to take as much territory as possible, maybe 50%, maybe more. And then what the police do is after we've controlled this land, after we've controlled this market, Let's try to maintain market share. So commandos are like the startup, Series A, Series B. There might be a market, we don't know, but we're going to try to figure out. Um, there might be enemy forces there. There might be um, booby traps like market regulations against Airbnb and Uber. We don't know, but we're going to try to figure it out. So after we've established an outpost, we figure out, hey, you know, there's business opportunity here. Then we hire a lot of soldiers to quickly scale across all countries across all markets, across more products. 
And then maybe once we've become dominant, I don't know, like global banks dominant, uh, MasterCard and Visa dominant, um, then we try to hire police to make, maintain its dominant position uh, to maintain all the, all the systems. So for me, so I, I think it was my mentor that shared this with me. And I was like, oh my goodness, that is so clear to me now. I know why I was not happy in certain roles, such as in the government. I realized that for me, I really like building things and quickly testing them with customers. So I, I identify myself as a, somewhere in the middle of commando and police, uh, no, commando and soldier. So based on that, when I try to guide my decisions, I aim for startup-like teams. So it doesn't mean startup. So Amazon is clearly not a startup. But Amazon has a very startup culture, has startup-like teams, small two-pizza teams. They try to drive things forward. So once I understood that, and I shared this with other people, once people understand this, they can make better career choices um, that fit this aspect of it. Of course, there are other aspects like culture fit with your team, um, the technology stack they're working on, the problems they're working on, th those are very important as well. So this is just one small part of it. I think it's, it's a very interesting um, methodology of approaching career decision that you laid out. Thank you. Yeah, I can't take credit for it though. I, I think it was my mentor who shared about it and he, he also read about it from somewhere. Kind of round up a little bit uh, on your career progress. Time and time again, you emphasize the importance of writing, given the fact that you, you wrote a lot. So on, on the craft of writing, you recently wrote about your writing process and also disclosed your notebooking strategy. Can you unpack them for those who want to, you know, improve the writing habit? So I think, firstly, I want to share about how I got into writing. I think back then, I think like two or three years ago, uh, before I started uh, my website, I, I actually interviewed a lot of people, similar to how you're doing in this podcast. Um, the question I was always asking them was, what makes an effective data scientist? Is it ninja-like coding skills? Is it uh, research PhD level abilities in machine learning? Or uh, is it day-to-day -day munging of the data, really understanding the data very well, or business domain? Uh, the answer to me was very surprising. And, and it's not found in any of the Venn diagrams of data science that you see. Um, the answer they, they said was that, yeah, th those are all very important, but the most important of all is writing. Or rather, the most important of all is, com is communication. And that's what spurred me to do so many meetups and, and to write online. And now I see, I agree. So when I first started writing, so I wrote my, my writing process. I, when I first started writing, I honestly, I didn't know what I was doing. I would just sit at a laptop and try to squeeze something out. And that was very difficult. So you can see from the cadence, right? Um, I was writing about one a month, one post a month. And then after that, I started reading some books on writing. I figured, hey, if I'm going to do this for the rest of my life, I might as well put in some effort to try to get better at it. I think one thing that I read about was about Nicholas Luckmann. So Nicholas Luckmann was this German sociologist. So I think he wrote like thousands of papers and tens of books. He, he was just so super productive. Um, then I realized that writing doesn't actually start with writing. It doesn't start with you sitting at a laptop and trying to write. It starts when you are reading, when you're consuming material, when you're reading papers, and then you're taking, taking down notes on it. So that's, so I tried this. So at a point in time, I was very interested in this concept called serendipity in recommendations. So I read a lot of papers on serendipity. I think like almost 10 or 15 of them. I was taking down notes. And as I was taking down my notes, my next write-up just wrote itself. I was writing about all, all these different aspects of serendipity, such as unexpectedness, 
um, how, how people measure this, how this works, how that works. And I realized, hey, if I just tidy up my notes a bit, I would have another piece. And that's when I realized, oh, wow. So writing starts with reading, paper, consuming, collecting them through notes, and then tidying it up by creating the next blog post. So that's how it really completely uh, reframed my writing process. So about the note-taking process, uh, it's nothing very unusual, honestly. Um, I use this tool called Roam. So what, what it does, is, it, it essentially is tagging. So I, I used to take summaries before, but now these summaries are what I call my literature notes. It's similar to how Lukman called it in his Satelkasten, I have my literature notes. And from this literature notes, I'll pick out key. So these literature notes are just a summary of the paper or a summary of the book. The whole thing is one note. From this literature notes, I will pick out key points. Maybe in a book about writing, I'll read out key points is that writing doesn't start with writing. Note-taking is important, et cetera, et cetera. And then from these key points, these will be my permanent notes. Each permanent note is just a single idea. Then each permanent note will also have a tag, such as permanent note about writing, whatever tag of writing. Permanent notes about machine learning, data science, data engineering, they'll have the relevant tags. So anytime I want to write about a topic, I'll just go through the tags, go through my permanent notes, and essentially it just writes itself. I'll just pull in all the relevant information. And sometimes there'll be gaps, so I have to do more reading, more researching, and I create more notes. And that's my writing process right now. So I guess the tip is don't try to write by starting to write. Uh, take more notes and use your notes to craft your next piece. That also kind of sum it up to another important implication that, that uh, you probably you, you try to hear is like writing doesn't have to be original, right? Writing is about maybe a synthesis of notes that, you, that you've done and the, the original part is how you synthesize it, right? F fully agree. I think it's very difficult to come up with original thinking now. Uh, very hard to come up with original thinking, original substance. Yes, there's people who spend a lot of time researching that and they do. I think trying to set a high bar where everything you come out is just magic, everything you, everything you write is just original, it's very difficult, and it makes it harder for yourself to write as well. Perfect, yeah. Okay, so thanks a lot for sharing your, your, your process and uh, you know, kind of what, what you pick up along the way. Now I want to kind of move into talking to uh, some of the software aspect of data science. Basically, you know, you, you have been an advocate for a lot of processes in terms of cultural product and, and business aspect related to, to the design thing. So, uh, I want to discuss some of those ideas in this conversation. You know, in your second year at Lazada as a senior data scientist, you took on responsibilities in hiring, mentoring, and uh, stakeholder management. Uh, you actually also wrote a blog post on, you know, your first 100 days as a data science lead. So, you know, what are some of the useful lessons that you learned during the transition from an uh, individual contributor to leadership role? To be honest, I didn't figure out these lessons on my own. When the transition happened, I had a sit. I had a chat with my boss. Hey, what is it that you need me to do? I also had a chat with his boss. Why did you make me a data science lead? What is it I can do? And so this is what I learned. This is what they taught me and what, what I learned throughout. I think as an individual contributor, what I was always trying to do is to pump up 100% or 110% to build that system to help customers. I realized, and this is what they told me a lot, Eugene, you cannot continue to um, get into the details to be building it yourself. Um, it's not scalable with a team of 10 plus people. So, but instead, what we want you to do is to help the rest of the team, every individual person, be 20% better. Um, that way, across 10 people, the whole team is 200% better. 
So your role is to scale the team, to increase their output, put in the right practices, help them, mentor them, help them grow. So, okay, uh, I understood this. So I had to put in the right practices. So that's why I, I speak a lot about Scrum, a lot about writing a lot, writing your roadmap before you even start the project, um, getting alignment with stakeholders, uh, making sure that they will use what you use. This is all very important. The worst thing is to spend, I don't know, three man months building something that they won't use. That's, that's a waste of effort. Mm-hmm. So I try to focus a lot on helping a team grow. Um, and that was what my bosses told me to focus on. So what I did a lot was um, having one-on-ones, which it, it was new to our team and just asking them, where is it that you want to be in three years time? And how can we build you up for that? If you, if you say, I'm, I'm really interested in marketing data science, we're gonna get, I'm going to define you marketing data science projects. At least I know the interest, I can sort of align it with your interest. Or if you say, I'm really interested in natural language processing, okay, all the, most of the natural language processing projects, I, I'll give them to you instead of other things like recommendation systems, etc. So a lot of what I was trying to do was to try to fit, uh, find a fit between the individual motivation and what the team needs. So essentially what I was trying to do is I wasn't trying to optimize or try to build my own project anymore. I was trying to optimize for the whole team to help them grow, to put in the processes for them to be happy, to, to teach them good habits and, and, and to teach them how to communicate with stakeholders better so that the overall team's output is increased. So it was initially disorientating. So I, I, was, I was unclear, okay, so I do this, I do that. What is it that I actually deliver? And it's very hard to, to quantify it in terms of numbers. I didn't build this, I didn't build that, the team built this. But I think in the end, it all works out. I think you are assessed based on your team's output, how your team has grown, the satisfaction of your team, um, the retention, etc. So I, that, that was what I learned in my first 100 days. In this uh, aspect you know, of communication, having one-on-one with people, it looks like you really have to understand what are the, the team members' motivation, what are their strengths and weaknesses. I'm just curious, does your, your background in psychology and organizational behavior, does it come with how in here? And, you know, it could be, it may be, I don't know. I've been lead, reading a bit of leadership recently. And I think a good, I think, I can't remember where I read it, but a good leader needs to have a few things. One is to really care about people. The other one is to be really solid in engineering processes. And the other one is to have a solid vision that people can buy in. So the example they gave was um, Steve Jobs. His vision is so strong that people get sucked into his bubble, right? They just believe in it. The other one who is superb at organization and, and management is Andy Grove, uh, CEO of Intel, founder of Intel. I can't remember what the third one is. I, I think it was Campbell, Bill Campbell, who is like the trillion dollar coach. So he really cares a lot about people. So I think my interest is really people. Um, everything I do, it doesn't, I, I don't feel satisfied until it actually helps customers. That's the same reason why I went into psychology and it, as well. I, I'm very interested in understanding how people perform, how they think, and how I can make them perform better. So that matches what I do in my one-on-ones. Um, the first thing I, I noticed was, hey, the team, they don't seem to be high energy. They, they might be working on projects that they don't seem to be that interested in. So I try to make sure that I align them prof- properly so they're happy, right? Because I want my team to be happy so that we can have uh, fun Friday hours, um, the demos are more fun, everyone just seems happy in office.
I see. Yeah. So, so as we're talking about sort of, you know, leadership and, and vision, right? In your third year at Lazada as the vice president of data science, you facilitate a, a tech merger with uh, Alibaba Group, which um, you know, is a multinational tech company uh, specializing in e-commerce, retail, internet, and technology. What has been the engineering and business challenge throughout this acquisition? So I think maybe to give a bit of context, I believe that Lazada is Alibaba's first acquisition outside of China. So it was as much a learning experience for them as it was for us. So I, I can share with you the, the rough challenges we faced was that one, we were given a very, very tight timeline. We were given nine months to fully migrate onto their platform. So that means going from AWS to AliCloud, having to use their, their data model, their data schemas so that how a customer is represented in Alibaba is the same is used in Lazada, how a product is represented, how a review is represented. Implement all how they track user behavior in the apps on the web, as well as use their tools for search engine, building a search engine and, and building recommendation systems. So that was very stretch. That, that was a big stretch for our team. So, okay, that was the goal. That was the finish line that was given to us. And then the challenge I had was to try to facilitate this, um, especially within the data team. So this was very difficult. The Alibaba team, as part of this project, Project Voyager, they were mainly Mandarin speaking only. So very few of them could speak uh, English. And on my team, half of the people couldn't understand Mandarin. Half of the people couldn't understand. They can't understand Mandarin, they can't read Mandarin, they can't speak Mandarin. So uh, people were not very happy to say the least. People were being left out when most of the conversation was happening in Mandarin. So I had to try to figure, figure out how, how, how to manage this, um, how to manage my team's satisfaction. And okay, um, also the, the work was super brutal, right? We had to work 996, that means 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six, six days a week. Actually, when we went to Hangzhou, it's sometimes seven days a week. And we, we flew to overseas to China um, two weeks at a time. You fly there for two weeks, you come back one week, then you fly there again for two weeks. Um, because that was really the best way to work. To work there with your Chinese counterpart, sitting next to them or, or very close to them was really the best way for us to work. Mm -hmm. uh, at, at least till now, I, I think it's the only way that we could have done the nine-month deadline. So um, that was the engineering challenge, the very tight timeline and also trying to figure out how to ease my team into this process. Um, yeah, it seems like the, the cultural aspect, cultural challenges, of, uh, like you've already mentioned, in this case, language barrier was, was a significant roadblock. Uh, it was, it was. Yeah. And all the documentation was in, was in Mandarin, right? Right. Can you imagine how, how difficult it is? Uh, we had to do Google Chrome Translate, um, but you know, in translation, 50% of it is lost. So, so working was very, very difficult. For, for the people who couldn't understand Mandarin. As, as we also, you know, in this topic of, um, you know, the Alibaba acquisition, I want to briefly uh, discuss a keynote talk that you gave at the product and tech conference organized by OX Group in Amsterdam last year. Basically, your talk is called Asia's Tech Giants, and it covers, you know, platformization, the, the super apps, and Alibaba's playbook for the integration of the acquisition. Yeah, so, you know, but can you lay out the topics of that talk, you know, for you know, people who are interested in learning more about the e-commerce e aspect or, you know, the e-commerce ecosystem in Asia? 
I think it's useful to know a bit about the context about why OLX uh, reached out to me on this. So a bit about OLX. OLX is a global online marketplace um, in many, many countries. I think 45 plus plus um, across multiple verticals such as job search, they're sort of like a Craigslist, um, pre-loved goods, cars, etc. And, and they are rapidly expanding, sometimes through acquisition. So they had two main challenges, which is they're expanding so fast, they're acquiring small startups. How, how do they continue to scale, right? Uh, after a while, the, the tech stack is not as neat as they would like it to be, it's a bit uh, fragmented. So, so the main question they asked me was, how, how does Alibaba, how do players in Southeast Asia scale their platforms? across so many different properties. Alibaba is Taobao, Tmall, now Lazada, and now Daraz, which I recently acquired. How, how do they scale this across countries and vertices? So I shared about what I learned about Alibaba, and of course, some of the startups in Southeast Asia. I think essentially the, the main question that they have is this, what do we centralize and what do we localize? So I think in Alibaba's case, um, all the infra, all the web tracking, the data lake, it's all the same data lake, all the same entry point. The platform, such as the seller center, the tool for the seller is this, mostly the same code base. There might be some tweaks for our, our local team. Um, the data platform, the entire company uses the same data platform that is SQL based. Um, the machine learning tooling, we have something called platform for artificial intelligence. We also have a standard of a few packages for recommendation engines that are supported, that people from Taobao, Tmall, everyone uses and Lazada also uses it. So we have this standard capabilities and also guidelines, right? I think someone from Alibaba, when they look at Lazada's data now, they can very quickly understand it because the way we represent a customer, the way we represent a product is, is the same. The, the data schema is the same. So that makes it very easy for, for people to iterate fast across such a big organization. And then the, the question is then, then what do we localize? What, what do the local teams do? Um, in Lazada's case, what the local, local teams do is the app design and the development um, in the sense that in for, and this was back then, the local app is very different from how the Chinese app looks. People in Lazada are, are used to, Southeast Asian customers are sort of used to a standard, it's the standard app that they have been, they've, they've been having. We can't do a quick, too quick of revamp. And also, I think uh, one thing about data science is the, the local campaigns. So in Lazada, we were working a lot with um, languages from Vietnam, from Indonesia, that Alibaba wasn't quite equipped to deal with yet. So we did a lot of the local enrichment, a lot of the local campaigns and local fraud. The fraud in Southeast Asia is a bit different from Southeast Asia. So that's what we discussed about. I think the other question they had was that of the super app, which is they, they noticed that WeChat was a super app, uh, Grab and Gojek, they are super apps. They, they're trying to figure out how to, how to do that, right? Mm -hmm. So I also shared a lot about that. So I realize now that I've written a lot of details about this, but I think it might be a bit too long to go into it. Um, but I, I have the slides online, so, so people, listeners can, can read more about it online as well. Yeah, for sure. I, I put that in, in the show notes. never chance to talk about it, you know, to learn about it later. But one thing I, I really enjoy about just looking at that slide is uh, the contrast between the idea of uh, handling and unbundling between the yeah. from the West, how third uh, culture here in the US at least is through unbundling Facebook, unbundling Google, unbundling Craigslist, stuff like that. Um, and it seems like in the case of super apps, you know, they try to localize a lot of the, the, the ecosystem. Right? 
That, that's a good point. So maybe I'll try to share a bit. I'll try to touch on this a bit. So why is it that we bundle so much in, in China and Southeast Asia? I think one thing is, let's say we come up with an app for payments, right? And how, how do we get users to use this app? Uh, most of the time, we give them money. So if you're using WeChat Pay, you send um, your friends a red packet, right? Uh, using WeChat Pay. During Chinese New Year, Lunar New Year, that's the uh, standard thing to do. We send them a red packet and they, they'll do something like, okay, if you send a red packet, you might get $8 or you might get $88. So we, we use this money to get people to send red packets to other people. And when you send a red packet to your friend, let's say I send a red packet to you, James, for you to actually receive the money, you need to install WeChat. So that's how they do customer acquisition. So, okay, now that we have WeChat and we have all these customers on WeChat, and we want to introduce new apps, like maybe, I don't know, WeChat Food or WeChat Maps or WeChat Video. There's no need to find more customers, right? We just use this parent app, WeChat, and have other people use this parent app to distribute their apps. So in a sense, WeChat is becoming the operating system. And similar to how iOS and Android is operating system. But in the US, I don't know why this is not happening. Uh, but like you said, we're seeing the unbundling of Craigslist, the unbundling of Google Drive into Sheets, Docs and slides. So, to be honest, I don't know the answer for to bundle or not to bundle. Um, but what I did present to them was okay, this is what I see happening, and you have to figure out for yourself which one actually works best. You know, one significant responsibility of your leadership role while you were, um, you know, Lazada was to um, scale the data science team via hiring new employees. And then um, in, a, in a blog post called building a strong data science team culture. You sort of review some of the values and social aspect of Lazada's data science team culture. So would you mind unpacking them? Okay, so a bit of the context. In a sense, I think this was about one to two years into the start of the data science team. So we just started, we were given a mandate, which is to, I don't know, improve business outcomes through recommendation engines, uh, automation, etc. But it was not quite clear for the team itself uh, what we stood for, what our culture, what our practice is. And, and when people uh, interview, they ask, hey, they ask what your culture is about. So I realized that at that point in time, I also didn't quite know. So, and, and that so many people are asking, I feel like, hey, you know, maybe it's important. Uh, and it is important. So I had a lot of uh, interviews with people within the team to ask them, hey, what in our culture is it that you enjoy? Um, people would say things like, oh, I love how our managers give us a task to accomplish on our own. They don't care how we do it as long as we do it. So they, they love the ownership. Or some people would say, oh, I love how we have some awesome teammates here that we, we collaborate a lot with. And so through this interview, I, and also I model it after some of the companies that I really admire, um, such as Amazon for moving so fast, delivering great value to customers, and Netflix for being able to quickly switch, right? They were sending out mail order DVDs and now they are doing live streaming. Now they are producing their own content. So I really admire that. So there are, there are only five practices. I think there are five uh, aspects of the culture. So I would say the first one is ownership. Everyone really enjoyed it. I would say, okay, ownership is important. You will always have ownership and autonomy over your projects. The second one is collaboration. I think that's very important as well. Uh, we don't want people to only be focused on their projects. We want people to help the team as well. It, it's very important that um, the output from the whole team is more than every individual person combined. Mm -hmm. Then there was one thing which was communication, specifically external communication. This was something that our team was not very good at. 
And this is something my bosses reflected to me in the sense that, hey, we're not quite talking enough with the business. We're not quite aligned with them. Sometimes we will build things that they can't use, wasted effort. So this was very important that we put it in part of our culture principles so that people will follow. And of course, for the team, what was very important to them was research. I wanted to make it clear to the team as well as to clear to the company that, hey, we're going to be doing innovation, that we have room for innovation and research, um, that we are long-term thinking. And of course, the last, which I think is the most important, is impact. The team was superb at producing results, um, driving things forward. And I was really excited about that. I want to say, hey, guys, none of the principles matter if we don't deliver results to our customers, if we don't deliver to the organization. So with that, everyone was aligned about that. Every time we, we talk about a project, we assess a project, we assess outcomes, we look at that. And when candidates try to join us, they, they, will be, they will be like, oh, what is it that Lazada does? We can share that with them this document. So they know, hey, we're not just an innovation lab. We don't do uh, moonshot projects. It is important that we deliver them, put them into production, and they have a better sense of us before even coming for the interview. And thanks for you know, kind of emphasizing on, on that uh, culture aspect. Yeah, definitely playing more and more importance within the data science culture. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you, you evangelize a lot on this idea of basically combining data science with Azure development. So, so Azure development is essentially that this concept from, from software engineering has been popularized for you know, a decade now, and, and it's probably quite new in the context of you know, data science and machine learning. So you, you wrote a three-part series that um, sort of discussed the strength and weakness of Azure for, for data science, reviews the framework to apply Azure effectively, and also share some of the reasons why you favor it. So could you mind delivering some of the key points from, from this series? Yeah, yeah firstly, I, I didn't know I was an evangelist for <laughs> data science and agile. I think um, how this came about is we adopted Scrum in Lazada. And when we sort of mentioned this, when I talk about this at panels, people are always very surprised. Hey, you guys adopt Scrum. How does it work? Um, is it useful or not? And it got to the point whereby so many people asking me the same question. I figure out, hey, I should just write it and just put it online and I can refer them to this blog post. Th there's three write-ups, so it's there's a lot to unpack, but I think maybe I'll just go through the last one. Mm -hmm. So when I first started using Scrum, I thought it was a process. You have to do this process of stand-ups, prioritization, retrospectives, demo, et cetera, et cetera. You have a Scrum master, a product owner, et cetera. I think as I apply it more, I realized that I'm a lot more relaxed with these standards. I think the most important thing are a few key things that are most important. Firstly, you want to think about how to iterate fast, right? Um, that's where you think about how to time box it. So data science projects, I mean, building a recommender could take anything from two years to a simple one in two months. So for me and for our customers, I'd rather we have something that may work, may not work in two months than spend two years on it and it might still not work. So I think that's very important, which is our agile, which is to iterate very quickly. The second one is, I think it's very important, and this is what my past teams have not been very good at. That's why I, I made a priority, which we do prioritization on our uh, roadmap together with the business. So for example, we could be very interested in doing really sexy things like maybe image classification or image search, but maybe if the business doesn't need it, then it's a less of a priority. So it's very important to understand what the business needs, what customers needs, and figure out how you can solve those problems with data science instead of trying to build something sexy and just hope 
people will like it. That's what Amazon does very well. Amazon has this process called working backwards, whereby we work backwards from the customer problem, from the customer opportunity. What is it that people need? Then we try to build it. Instead of starting from the solution, then finding customers, we start from the problem and find a solution. So I, th I think that's the, that's the two main concepts, which is to iterate fast and figure out what the problem is first. Then there are two practices which I really enjoy in, in Scrum. And I, I would say that most of my team, team members who've been in Scrum, they really enjoy this as well. I would say demos. Demos is uh, super fun. Once we have demos, uh, there's a regular cadence, right? People are eager to share. People work fast, eager to share what they have found the results they've managed to achieve, the hack that they did, as well as get feedback. Demos are a great way for them to get feedback on their work. So that's why I, th I find that team really enjoys the, the get energized at the demo session. And it's, it's a great way for, for people to transfer knowledge as well, right? Oh, this is how I figure out how to deploy a model via Docker. And, oh, I have this code base here. You can use it to deploy your future models. Um, the second thing is retrospective. I think when you become a leader or manager, right, it's it sometimes becomes very unusual whereby teammates that were once friends, they're still friends, but they're they not as open with feedback as before with you. So what we do in retrospectives is that um, it's just three main buckets. is what went well, what didn't go well, and what is puzzling. And if we put it there um, on the whiteboard, and it's just a very neutral objective environment, we just want to figure out what's wrong with the process. And... There's nothing to do with management. There's nothing to do with people. There's nothing to do with concept, uh, culture or stakeholders. It's just objectively what went well, what didn't go well, and what was puzzling. You get a lot of feedback. And of course, what went well is very important. But what didn't go well, like maybe people will say, oh, it's just way too difficult to get access to the data. I have to get so many permissions. It slows down my work by, I don't know, three days. Okay, if you can solve that, you would save everyone who needs to get data three days of effort. And that goes a lot. So retrospectives are a very important process. After, I don't know, 10, 20 retrospectives, you would, you would look back to before you started and you realize that, oh my God, we have improved by so much in our process. Um, so that's what I really like about Agile. Awesome. Thanks a lot for providing a very clear structure in, in the way that Scrum can, can, uh, can bring upon setting your examples from your Spurn, Lazada, and, and other companies as well. Uh, so, so now I want to kind of move on into another topic that uh, is, is definitely, you know, become more and more important for data scientists and machine learning engineers, which is a topic of, um, you know, machine learning in production. So, uh, yeah, so basically, you know, I, I want to discuss a couple of the, the specific projects that we work on and see how, how industry ML is uh, different from cargoes or online classes. So in your first year at Lazada, you were heavily involved with the development of product ranking, product recommendations, and product classification models. You actually also gave a talk called How Lazada Ranks Products at the Strata and Hadoop 2016. That shows how those models are contributing to increased conversion rates and revenue possession, to higher engagement, and to improve product quality. So would you mind walking over some of the problems, the results, and the takeaways delivered in that talk? Firstly, I think it's important to, useful to know that my target audience for this talk was not really the conference, uh, the people at the conference. My target audience for this talk was really the sellers. Um, the sellers who list uh, their products on Lazada. That's why I made the slides available so that people can look at it. I wanted to share how we were ranking products so they could try to figure it out and work within a system 
and give the customer the best experience. So the first part was we have to first develop a ranking model, right? So every day we'll figure out, hey, for each of the category pages, uh, for each product, what is the search score we should have? There's nothing too special about this. I mean, we look at uh, historical metrics such as clicks, click-through rate, add-to-cart, purchases, and try to, try to predict against a target label. So this target label could be conversion rate, um, absolute conversion numbers, revenue, or add-to-cart rate, etc., or, or customer acquisition. So those can be mixed and matched depending on your business objective. But the features, the underlying features are the same. Then the second part is there was a point in time whereby Lazada was taking on a new product. So I wanted to show sellers that we were paying attention to new products and we were trying to put in effort to really help them. Maybe it's useful to break this down a bit. So to try to figure out what new products to show that I, I, I took, at the point in time, I looked at it as a demand and supply problem. So to look at it from a supply problem, you would look at what products are doing well now what products are very similar to those products that are doing well now that are new and try to recommend them. So you can think of it that there's item to item, right? There's, there's an item to item relationship, content-based uh, collaborative filtering. That's one. Uh, that's the approach that I didn't try. Um, the other approach is demand-based. So we sort of look at um, what customers are searching for on our website because we own the search navigation, right? We own the logs what customers are searching for and not finding, not finding good products for. So based on this, it's very flexible, right? We know what customers want. We know what customers cannot find. And that's the new product that we should match them. So based on this, um, the results were re really, really fantastic uh, in the sense that for new products, I think we increase clicks and add to cart and com conversion rate by hundreds of percent be because the problem was so bad to begin with, right? That uh, in e-commerce, there's always this problem whereby the rich get richer. Products that have a lot of engagement, people buy them because of people buy them, uh, their sales rank is high and then they get more engagement. So it's very difficult. Of course, we have advertising now. We have ads now to solve this problem. But back then, we didn't have this. So the third part was about product quality. So I wanted to show sellers that we really care about product quality and Trying to cheat customers will not get you very far. So how do sellers try to cheat customers? They can try to cheat customers by saying that, hey, I'm, someone is selling this dress. I'm going to sell the same dress at 20% of the price. But the quality is going to be so bad and it's going to show up in the reviews. People are going to leave one-star reviews. Um, there's going to be a lot of negative feedback. And if sellers, they say that, oh, I'm going to ship you in one day, but in the end, the shipping time is actually three days or four days, we can actually track that. Um, and if there's counterfeit, if the content quality is very bad, someone is giving an image of a handbag with five to six high quality photos, maybe yours is a copy of the photo or it's very low quality or your, con uh, your descriptions are not very rich and it's not helpful for the customer, we penalize you on that as well. So I was very transparent to the customer, uh, to the sellers. This is what we rank on in terms of product quality, image quality, title quality, description quality, as well as the metrics that happen when users actually receive the product, the ratings, how long it took to ship. And this is how we will change the rank of your product based on this to, to let sellers know that how we do that. I believe like one, one of the key takeaway from that talk is you know, how, how you use data to solve the problems and, and the process of like data cleaning and feature engineering much more important than the modeling aspect. Uh, and it, it seems like you, you kind of mentioned that already with the fact that uh, the quality of the, of the data from consumers, right? 
and 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 define the problems. What's the bottleneck? Yeah, do you have do you have anything more to add on, add on that point? Yeah, I would say that in a lot of the talks I've I've given, I I would say that back then this is what is happening. I don't know now. Uh, if if it's the same, I think a lot of people overly focus. There's a lot of emphasis on the machine learning aspects on it. Um, there's not a, a lot of focus on the other aspects of it, which is like what you mentioned: data cleaning, feature engineering, figure out how to frame the problem. And that's why in this talk, that's what I try to emphasize, right? Uh, the machine learning part is not very sexy. We just use a standard ranking model, but how to figure out how to solve the problem is actually much harder. And I talk about this in many, many of my talks as well, to the point that it's actually become boring in the sense that my talks don't really cover a lot of, mach a lot of machine learning. Um, I can, but it's just that I found that this is not uh, the most important in terms of delivering value to customers. Continuing on, on challenges, later on, while acting as president of data science, you have mentor and empower teams on multiple machine learning systems. So uh, one job talk called uh, Data Science Challenge at Lazada at the Big Data and Analytics Innovation Summit back in 2018, you discussed um, the various trade-offs that your team faced, including um, you know, the trade-offs between manual input and input, between uh, development speed and production stability, and between short-term and long-term impact. So can you uh, expand on this challenge and uh, how, how did your team overcome them? I, I think when I was looking at this summit, right? I was looking at the agenda. I was looking at what people were talking about. A lot of people were talking about, again, a lot of machine learning, a lot of big data, um, how we did this with machine learning, how we did that with machine learning. But back then, I felt that my, my biggest challenge in data science was, yes, machine learning is important, um, but there were other aspects that are not often talked about. So that was why I decided to talk about these aspects to, to try to complement these other talks because they didn't need another machine learning talk, I felt. Mm -hmm. So one thing was um, the balance between manual input and algorithmic input, right? I think the, the, the overall principle of this is gaining trust with the business. So at a point in time, we had this ranking model and the business didn't quite trust the ranking model, right? So you can imagine all the category managers, they were manually selecting the top how many products every day um, because this is their sense, this is their gut feel. And a lot of times, sometimes they'll be right, but most of the time, the machine learning model will actually do much better but they didn't trust it. And the problem was my fault. After I built the model, I didn't take the time to explain to them how it worked. I didn't take the time to educate them on it, um, to address their concerns. So there was a lot of manual overriding of this model that was really suppressing the benefits of the model. So what I wanted to emphasize then was that, hey, you know, it's, it's great that you have a machine learning model uh, and you have all these metrics and results, but you also have to make sure that people understand them and trust them so they don't do manual overriding of the model, so, so they use it. I think the second one, second big concept was, I think, the trade-off between death speed and stability and, and short-term and long-term is, is really short-term and long-term focus. So to get short-term wins, we can do some quick hacks and get some very quick results through A-B testing, right? But after that, we have to get the buy-in and agreement to say that, okay, this is a quick hack. I'm going to do it for you. You're going to see the results you want. But after that, right after that, you got to give me time, maybe a few months time to clean it up, to put in the unit testing, the deployment, automated failovers, the auto scaling, so that the, the quick hack is going to break, I don't know, maybe once a month, once a week, and that's going to take away time. That's, that's going to be a lot of operational burden. So you, you need to give us a time to really fix this and make this sustainable long-term. 
the business sometimes they will see that hey you know it's really done what you build is good enough we don't need more effort yeah it's, it's good enough you're seeing the results but there's operational burden so we have to balance between the long-term and short-term trade-off related to your work at uh, UK.ai during the data x conference last year you shared the case study of how you know UK.ai developed a machine learning system for Southeast Asia's largest healthcare group that can estimate a patient's total bill at the point of pre-admission so can you yeah, spare some of the key takeaways from that talk? Yeah, so at that time, I, I was really interested to share with the community in Singapore about how we started with a problem. So the problem is trying to estimate a patient's bill and design a solution for it. And it's a similar trend to a lot of my previous talks is that, yes, the, I, I was in charge of the machine learning aspect of it. But again, through the slides of the talk, the machine learning aspect is really a small portion of it and many people have mentioned this as well. We had to take care of the whole end-to-end -end pipeline, such as how they send us data and how it's encrypted and decrypted, how we make sure that this ingestion pipeline is safe, how we validate the data, how we check this medical record data and make sure it's proper, how we prepare it. After we train the model, prepare it, how we validate the model to make sure it's accurate because we do daily, I can't remember if we did daily deployments, but we're ready for daily deployments, automated deployments, but we need to make sure that the model is safe for use. And after deployments, how we do quick rollbacks. So we use a combination of Docker and registry so that anytime there's an issue, we just swap out and use the, the latest Docker image. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the key takeaways for the talk, right, is that there were many, many aspects of machine learning that were really important um, outside of machine learning itself. And I also wrote a two blog posts about this whereby I, I mentioned the challenge of maintaining machine learning models after that. And the, the key takeaway is that data science is not just about data scientists. Throughout this whole pipeline, I had, it was a whole team. We had software engineers and DevOps who helped with the data encryption, the ingestion, and, and building up, setting up the infra, setting up the Docker containers, the CI, CD. Um, so it's really a team process. Yeah, and, and really just, just why I want to dig in a little bit deeper on what you mentioned about blog posts. You, know, you wrote two articles that first uh, exposed the change after model deployment and also use another practical guide to maintaining models in production. So yeah, what are some of those challenges and how did your guide address some of those challenges? When I first started trying to write that piece, I didn't know that it would be so big. And I think maybe it's a bit too big for us to discuss very in depth, but I can, I can share that in my experience, I think it's not very difficult to uh, deploy a machine learning model, especially now. There's a lot of investment in, in the tooling to make it easier, such as AWS SageMaker, Google, AI Platform, etc. What I'm not seeing is a discussion on how to maintain it after deployment. So people are going to ask, hey, you know, how do we make sure that your ranking model, your recommendation model is still performing well? How do we know that this price estimate you're, you're giving, customers are asking why this is happening? How do you maintain this? How, how do you have to minimize the operational burden? In my blog post, the, the main things I talk about is checking. Uh, first, you need to check the data, right? And in the recent uh, Spark and AI Summit, um, Netflix shared about how they check the data. So it's very similar to uh, what, I, what I suggested, which is just checking the basic statistics. If you're expecting male and female, the, the gender balance to be about 50-50, if anytime this gender balance exceeds plus or minus 10%, just call a failure. Just make the pipeline break. Um, if you expect age to be between, I don't know, one years old and 120, anytime you have numbers outside of that, uh, just call a failure, etc. And model validation, right, it's, it's pretty simple. Just have a sample test set, 
have a small test set of the latest one month of data. After you train the model, make sure that it valid, you validate on the test set, check for performance metrics, basic recall position, AUC. If it's good enough, um, then deploy it. But if your model has gone completely haywire, it's learning on the wrong thing, it's not converging, for some reason, that validation will expose it very clearly. And when it happens, just break the pipeline. It's fine. It's better to have a stale model in, in production than to have a model that's completely bonkers in production. And then there's also other aspects like how do you try to um, democratize the data science aspect of it? For example, customers might be complaining, hey, I'm seeing this recommendation. I don't want to see it. Or maybe internal corporate stakeholders are saying that maybe, hey, we don't want to recommend lingerie on the homepage. We don't want to recommend adult products on the homepage, et cetera, et cetera, for certain countries, right? Because of religion, et cetera. So yes, we can try to do this with just writing a script, SQL script, et cetera, but that's just too difficult to maintain. Instead, what we do is, hey, maybe we can set up some kind of tool for them to just enter, hey, we want to exclude certain products, certain categories, or certain customers don't want to see their recommendations anymore. And they can just enter in the UI and the UI every day will just run a job that updates it, updates your recommendations or products. So that's a few of the things that I, I, I found really makes it a lot easier to maintain machine learning in production. Related to that point, you know, you mentioned that there's a lot, uh, there's a variety of tools that can help with um, the model deployment process, you know, AWS, GCP, Azure, etc. But uh, it seems like that, that practice of monitoring models was actually pretty ad hoc. So, you know, just, just yeah. curious, you know, do you see any open source or any uh, enterprise software in the market at the moment that uh, can handle uh, ML monitoring? Or do you have any recommendation, I suppose? Yeah. Hmm, that's a good question. I actually haven't dug into it, but one thing I use, one tool I use a lot is MLflow. So I actually have a write-up and sample experimentation workflow about how I use MLflow. Okay, so Jupyter, Jupyter Notebooks everyone is familiar with. MLflow, I think most people will be familiar with this as well, is by Databricks, the developer of Apache Spark. So essentially, with very little code, you can track your model parameters, your configuration, um, your model results in a central server. So every time something is rerun, you can just go to the central server, all your metrics are there. It makes it just making it easy for people to monitor helps people monitor it. But that they, it doesn't have certain, it doesn't have things like notifications for when a metric falls below a certain threshold or, or controlling things. So I'm sure there's other products out there, but I found MLflow does this very well. Awesome, yeah, thanks a lot for bringing that in the conversation. Yeah, so I kind of, uh, you know, write out our, our talk, with, uh, discussing a little bit about a couple of personal projects that you have done just for fun and sort of work. Early on in your career, uh, one of the earliest projects that you work on is on uh, product classification, I believe. And you wrote a, a three-part series that use a public Amazon dataset and do uh, two APIs for image classification and image search. So yeah, can, can we talk a bit more about um, working on, on this, uh, this personal project? Maybe I think it's useful to share some context about why I try to do this. At that point in time, I was still pretty new to machine learning, I think maybe two or three years in. And I was trying to get some more experience, right? Uh, I had done a number of courses. I had done a lot of courses, but I still felt like something was missing. So that was why I, okay, I found some data. Thankfully, I, I was actually going to scrape the data myself. Okay, 
uh, I, I shouldn't say this, but I was actually going to script the data. I didn't um, because it felt like just so much work. So I, I looked all, all around and try, I found this amazing data set. I think I can't remember who the prof is, but it, it's available on his website. Um, I found this amazing data set. I wrote to him. I said, hey, I would like to do this for this for this personal project of mine. Could you have me? He was very kind. He gave me access to the data set. So it's very interesting. I got the data set and I realized, hey, it's not in CSV or not in a database format, tabular format I was, I was used to. So, okay, it's so immediately something something new, how to pass this JSON into proper format and, and how to work with data that couldn't fit into my memory, right? Because this data was, was very big. I think it was like 20 gigabytes. And back then my laptop was like maybe 4 GB RAM or 8 GB RAM. So immediately I was learning something new about how to uh, work through data uh, iteratively instead of loading all my memory. But once I had that clean up, the feature processing, um, the data preparation was, was all very familiar to me, right? And, and building a machine learning model. So that was very familiar to me. Uh, so, okay, cool. I, I did that very quickly. Then I, I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted to demonstrate this to my boss in the sense, hey, you know, at a point that I was really trying to convince uh, my boss at Lazada to let me do certain things. So that's why I built this. So I, I wanted to put it online, put it, Accessible, make it accessible to the world. And then that's when I realized, holy crap, there's so much that I don't know and I have to figure out for myself. Firstly, I didn't know how to use AWS. I had no experience with cloud at all. Everything was on my local machine at that point in time. I had to learn about that. I had very little experience with GPUs or even the deep learning frameworks. I think uh, TensorFlow, I, I think back then I was using Tiano. I don't know if people still remember Tiano. I was using Tiano and trying to figure out how to work with GPUs. And then image classification, I certainly didn't learn that in my online, uh, online courses on Coursera. And also there, back then, there was this very new thing called transfer learning that promises to be a shortcut to image classification, right? So I learned a lot about that. And right now, everyone is saying, hey, no point training a model from scratch, just do transfer learning. So that was very valuable. Then I also had to figure out how to build an API, right? How people can send in an input and get some output. And all that, how, how do I deploy on AWS server, uh, make it easily available, and, and build some basic front end so that it'd be sexy for people. So that's how I went about going, and it was super, super um, rewarding in the sense that I had to learn all these things that didn't matter. And I think learning all this actually made it a lot easier for me to get things done at work as well, to, de to deploy things. In another project working on document system, you uh, wrote a two-part series that implement seven different models on the same Amazon <laughs> from factorization uh, to graphs and NLP. So what was your, your process for this experiment? Yeah, <laughs> at that time I was trying to just mix and match things. So I, I first started with um, building an end-to-end -end pipeline, the most basic of all. Uh, that started with matrix factorization, right? So this was done in PyTorch. So the pipeline is actually fairly standard and the components are reusable. So there's a data iterator that iterates through all the product pairs. And then there's a validation process and there's a training process. And then right in the middle, there's this model component. So first I built this end-to-end -end pipeline. Then as I tried different approaches, all I had to do is to really change the model itself and the rest would still work. If, if you build that process modular enough, uh, general enough, you can just change the model and everything will still work. So that, that was my um, that was my end-to-end -end process. Um, first, get something very basic working end-to-end, -end, and then iterate, trying crazy ideas within this, just solely within the machine learning algo component. And that made iteration very fast. 
I see. Yeah, and I'll be sure to put that into the show notes so people can get a review of your, your experiment. Quote, uh, which was very uh, detailed. And yeah, Thank I'm, you. In fact, I actually also work on uh, work on this Amazon that I said before. Was um, yeah, yeah, was uh, was one for one of my class for on, on big data. So we have to, you know, working with MongoDB and and, and um, PostgreSQL. So actually using this data to, to present in class. So yeah, well, it was fun because it was like, like exactly you mentioned, my laptop couldn't hold, hold the, <laughs> yeah. our teammates got a bigger laptop so you can <laughs> yeah. Yeah. send it on. Yeah. I, I think it's great that such big data sets available, uh, are available online, right? And big thanks to the prof who made it available so that people can actually get some experience with big data even without working in industry or even ha having access because hey, a 20 gigabyte data set, okay, it's not big right now compared to now, but it's fairly big if you compare only to your local machine. And the way you have to process the data, the way you think about it is very different. And that's a valuable experience. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Eugene, so at this point of our conversation, I want to move on into the closing segment in which I'm going to uh, ask you a three a rapid fire question. And yeah, you can give the answers for the listeners who um, you know who want to seek some of your input. So number one, uh, name three people in the data science universe whose work you really admire. So I'm going to name three unusual people. Um, I think the first one is Andre Kapati. Are, are you familiar with him? He's director of AI at Tesla. I think what I really admire him is that how he's able to bring his research and really apply in the real world, right? And of course, the content that he puts out. I learned a lot about early sequence and text models from his blog post, right? Like, I think there's one about the unreasonable effectiveness of RNNs. And, and recently, he shared very practical advice, such as a recipe for training neural networks. So that recipe, I'm sure he must have spent hours of experience um, learning what worked, what didn't work. And he distilled it very nicely for, for people like us, right? So I'm very appreciative for that. Yeah. The other one is Jeremy Howard. So his, I think he founded several companies, including Kaggle. And together with Rachel, he, he co-founded FastAI. And they really made it uh, made deep learning more accessible to coders and hackers, right? And I took some of their classes. I really love their pedagogical approach of start this. First, they start the problem. They show you that this problem can be solved. They don't go into details yet. After they get you excited about solving this problem, then they go into the details. And I think that's really great for many, many learners out there, right? A lot of times people start the theory and people are wondering, okay, I'm going to learn this theory, but how will I use it? So I really love how they, they completely flip it around. It's amazing. And one thing, I think Jeremy Howard and Sebastian Ruder, they also wrote this paper about transfer learning for NLP. I think it was called Universal Language Model Fit or something. Um, that, that really made people think about transferring for MLP. I, that's what I read about. I, I don't know, maybe someone else before that already uh, put forth transfer learning for NLP. Um, but I think that that was a big change. And I think the last person that I've uh, been paying a lot more attention to recently is there's this staff machine learning engineer at GitHub. I don't know if you've heard of him, Hamel Hussein. Yeah, he, he created a lot of machine learning tooling um, and content around ML ops. And I think that's really, really useful for data scientists and, and not uh, enough people pay attention to it. So recently here, a few people have uh, put up together ML ops on, on how to do machine learning ops on, on GitHub, via GitHub Actions, right? 
I think together with Jeremy Howard, he also uh, put forward fast pages to make it easier for people to publish, right, for, via Jupyter Notebooks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I think that's superb. That's just what a community needs. Awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing those. All those people are very, you know, getting a lot of uh, recognition these days. And I think like for Andre Kapati, I think, I think one of the critical points that he uh, really bring upon research is this idea of software 2.0, which is, um, you know, the blog post about this probably last year or so. That, that's the way, you know, kind of like shape the thinking behind ML in production for past month or past year or so. Yeah, so definitely he had a big uh, influence in both research and industry in, in that regard. For sure. The, the, the second point, can you name one book that you do recommend for people to develop a better analytical mindset? I think it's very difficult for me to recommend just one book. Um, but I can tell you what are two books I give to um, junior data scientists that join my team. So the first book I give is um, Introduction to Statistical Learning. I know a lot of people cite elements of statistical learning. Um, I actually have both books and I'm looking at them right now. Introduction to Statistical Learning is about half the thickness of elements, right? And it's a lot more digestible. It doesn't quite scare people off. I think it's possible if you really take a month or two to study it, you can fully understand it. And there's also an online course um, by the same authors, right? Trevor Hasty and Robert Tribbiani, Kipshiani, I think, um, that really walks through the models. And if you fully understand it, you would have a great perspective of machine learning from the statistical point of view. And of course, um, if you want something from the computer science point of view, maybe consider Artificial Intelligence by Peter Novick. It's like the de facto textbook. Um, but that's not, it doesn't quite suit me very well. I, I much prefer a statistical approach. The other book that I would highly recommend, and almost everyone I've given this book to, they, they really love it, uh, is this book called Pragmatic Programmer. It is by Andrew Hunt and David Thomas. So this was the first amazing coding resource that made an impact on me. So it, it, what it really talks about is how to code pragmatically in the sense, hey, instead of building a whole big project in two or three months, just build the skeleton first and get it right, working end to end. And then you try to fill in the skeleton. So they, they share some very, very pragmatic practices that made a big impact on me. And like, oh, I'm, if I'm going to build machine learning systems, this is how I'm going to build it so that it's more sustainable and it's just more pragmatic that way. Yeah, thanks a lot for, for emphasizing on those. Um, I think you brought up a great point on both of those recommendations first on this idea of uh, have a good understanding of uh, statistical knowledge and second is actually learning best software engineering practice from data scientists. I think uh, a lot of people point out that people who do um, data science in general doesn't really have a strong CS background so most of the time that uh, the code they're written is, is on notebook or it doesn't follow proper engineering practice. So having, having a, some sort of exposure or knowledge about uh, clean code and all like, you know, like you mentioned, different type of linting, styling and object-oriented programming are, are very important to, to um, you know, integrate that to the rest of the, the ML system. Right. Yep, I agree. And then lastly, uh, imagine that we send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? <laughs> wow, that's uh, really difficult. But I guess I would share about uh, this approach that works really well for me. In a sense, when you're building a machine learning application, I think first focus on how your application will help people. Once you understand that, once you know how it will help people, maybe help them find books easier, 
help sellers not get caught by fraud or help people avoid fraud, once you really understand this, then work backwards from it. And then what you develop will be useful for them. It will make a much, much bigger impact if you understand how your end user is going to use it. So maybe that's not going to fit in the tweet, but I guess if I had to fit in the tweet form is uh, start with the problem first, then work backwards from it. This way, it will be, um, the impact will be 2 to 10x more, I think. Yeah, yeah. so essentially develop customer empathy and um, really focus on, 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 on the end user's problem before building the products, right? So it seems like it's a very similar idea to like being an MVP and you know, sort of the, the lean startup methodology, it seems like. I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, you really put it nicely. So, so yeah, Eugene, I, I really enjoy our conversation. Uh, I think we cover a lot of ground here from, you know, your, your, your background, how you progress throughout your career at, at various kind of different work environment. Uh, we talk about the softer side of data science from agile development to culture to, to leadership. We talk about, you know, ML productions uh, being customer focused and as well as a couple of the personal projects that you put on. So yeah, I'll be sure to include it, um, all the links in the show notes. So, you know, listeners um, and, and people who um, are interested can, can find out uh, about your, your great resources and, and reach out to you if they're interested. And uh, yeah, I believe you also like put out a couple of uh, curated repository on, 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 on the GitHub as well as a, a newsletter, right? Do you want to share any, um, you know, any of those for, for, for people who, who are interested? Yeah. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. I think that the repository on curated collections, right? That's something I've recently started to put online. I've actually been collecting that all along. And I realized that it's a very unusual um, hobby. Some people like to collect stamps or collect cards or baseball cards. I like to collect papers that I find are useful that are applied machine learning in the real world. So um, if anyone has similar interests and, and comes across that repo, and has, uh, would like to contribute, please um, do send me a pull request. I'll try to respond as, far as, I, as, as fast as I can and have your contribution added to the collection. Thank you. So yeah, Eugene, yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, I, I hope uh, listeners will feel the same. Uh, really enjoy the rest of your uh, day. Thank you. Thank you, James. Take care. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now. 